0: You who stand on the border of the flaming fire of hell, you cannot preach the gospel without first of all the negative. This is Luther's two halves of the gospel: the law and the gospel. Jonathan Edwards, men must be seen, must see they are lost before they will accept Christ as their savior. Whether it is in the old uh, terms of the old evangelist or whether it's in the twentieth century terminology, it makes no difference whatsoever when I see I'm lost and then I see that here is a way that God can accept me that rebel and will accept me the rebel and I have his promise he will accept me as this rebel and it'll not just be a horizontal acceptance among men an ecclesiastical acceptance in the visible church it'll not just be a psychological acceptance in my psychological peace it'll not just be a sociological acceptance but the acceptance, amazing thing, is in the sight of this holy God for a total salvation for eternity. When I see the promises of God, and first of all, I know it is true, and I see it is true, and then I act upon it and accept it for myself, then this is, this is evangelical faith. It has the two aspects. What is justifying faith? And I would just point out again that this is as though it were written yesterday. It's as though it were written standing in front of our liberal theological seminaries. And it's a placard to be put here. These men understood. And it says no. It says no to the whole modern trend of theology a whole modern trend of theology that reduces Christianity to one more religion like all the rest wherein man comes before God on the basis of his own works and hopes that God will accept it. It's not old-fashioned. It's as up-to-date as, as the next Bishop Robinson writing the next Honest to go. 73. This is the last one. How doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? How doth faith justify the sinner in the sight of God? Answer. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Not because of those other graces which do always accompany it, or, we would say nor today, nor of good works that are the fruit of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for justification now here we so often say how do you communicate with the 20th century after all people come here and they say how do you do it how do you do it we live in holland we don't communicate we live in england and we don't get it done we come from america and we don't don't see the thing how do you manage to communicate when all the words have been stolen and twisted and you'll remember so often I say to you, the way to communicate in the 20th century is always to say what you don't mean, to make clear what you do mean. There has to be a negative in order to put the proper content into the words. Well, these men have done the same thing. you notice in every place they've said what, they, what it isn't, so that you can understand what it is. And it's exactly here. Notice what it says. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Not. So there's three negatives. Not because of those other graces which do always accompany it. That's a beautiful word again. Because if it's true in living faith, as we've already seen, if there's true in living faith, other graces will accompany it. It won't be some sterile old hard thing. If it's a true in living of faith, other graces will accompany it, but that's not the reason faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Or good works that are the fruit of it. There will be good works of the fruit of it. Yes, happily there will be, though poor. But that's not the reason that God faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Nor is if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for righteousness, faith hasn't become a work. Faith has no value. The, the greatness of the faith by the greatness of the leap in the dark has no interest to God. Surely this is nothing compared with all the total creation, and yet we've seen total creation couldn't redeem a single soul. None of these things. But now, the positive. So I'll start again and leave out these phrases and go on to the positive. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. Only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and His righteousness, faith, as we say here, and this is totally theologically correct, but also I think valuable is to to make men understand faith is the is our faith is the only faith is only faith is only the empty hands which accepts the gift. They must be totally empty. Faith is the empty hands that accepts the gift. They are. This is the instrument that accepts that which is already final. So how doth faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God only as it is an instrument by which he receiveth and applieth Christ and his righteousness. Now I've gone through... Confession section or chapter 11 and justification and longer Catechism questions 69 through 73. I've also read at the beginning of the lesson shorter Catechism question 33, which I'll repeat now, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sin and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I would commend to you learning that question because it's short and it sums up all we say. Now then, next, to break it down a bit more. Now, in a sense, what I'm saying now is parallel. A lot of this that I'll say now, I've already said, but I couldn't think of any way to put it together that would be efficient. So, Various points concerning justification. One. Christians are justified. Sinners are justified. Because it's sinners who are justified. Men who are rebels. Those who are lost. Not for any work done by them. That's the first point. Not for any work done by them. Romans
1: 3.20
0: Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his, that is, in God's. So I'll read of God's. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Any standard we set up, even our own poverty-stricken moral judgments of others, as we stress, the man without the Bible, his poverty-stricken judgments of others, even these are not enough. He can't live up to these. He doesn't live up to these. Even such a poverty-stricken standard. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, even the poverty-stricken standards that... Mankind himself sets up and by which he judges others, even on such a poor base, even these, even these only prove to be that wherein he has a knowledge of sin. Because it shows him that he himself breaks them too. Also under this point that it's not for any work done by them is that the law demands perfect obedience. The law demands perfect obedience. Paul has something to say about this, of course, but I'll just choose James. James 2.10 For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and shall yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So I say point, Paul makes a point of this too, though I don't have the reference in front of me. Paul says if you do this and if you don't do this but you do this you are broken and james says the same thing for whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offendeth in one one point one thing he is guilty of all this of course is related to what we've already spoken of, of the of the infinity of of the person against whom we sin so what is demanded is is a perfect a perfect righteousness utter utter perfection And of course, relating this to our often discussion here, this is the reason the Christian has an absolutely moral universe, is because this is the kind of God there is. Remove this, and pretty soon men are floundering around trying to find an answer why they shouldn't do the most obvious sins, let alone the more subtle. Law demands perfect obedience. So it couldn't be for work done by us because none of us, none of us are perfect. None of us do keep the law perfectly. If we could take, if we could take and say, well, I will come to God on the basis of my past. Well, we just were overwhelmed. But if God gave you an absolutely clean page at 20 after 12 on this day in September 1963, And you had an absolutely clean page. You know you'd have no hope if you had to come on the basis of tomorrow. Consequently, it's not for work done by us. To, To put it upon the basis of work done for us, This is impossible as the man who is in prison he has committed a crime he is justly there he is waiting the judgment of the judge it's quite obvious he deserves the judgment it's quite obvious he has broken the law both to himself and to all men and he sits there on his little hard bed and As the bar is in front of him, he hears a good friend's voice crying down the corridor, good news, good news. And he stands up, grasps the bars, looks to his friend. His friend's come tearing down the corridor and stands before him with a big smile on his face and says, be good. If you could get him, you'd strangle him. Such a case. It's a wicked word. It's a wicked word and it's a cruel word this is not love though it is often put forth in the name of love this is not love it wouldn't be a loving word from God would it especially from God who can judge the hearts but it's not a loving word in theology either and it's not a loving word from a pulpit that says something that isn't true it sounds like love but it's cruel it's cruel the only possibility of being loved is if there wasn't a God or if God just was something less than perfection. As though there was no real moral standard in the universe. But just consider a moral, an absolute moral standard in the universe and that word by that friend is just as cruel, as cruel as anything anybody can imagine. So turning of the thumb screws upon the naked flesh. Point one. It's not for any work done by them. Justification is not. Point two. It's not by infusing righteousness. And as I say, this is the classic Roman Catholic theology. It is not by any work wrought in them. We've already dealt with that. But this is not the base of it. The base is is not anything even that we do as a fruit bearing to God in the sense of Him bearing the fruit. It is not that you'll be justified on the basis of of the fruit that Christ as the vine will bear through you or Christ as the bridegroom will bring forth through you as the bride of Christ. This is not the basis of justification. It's not for this, in the sense of not being on this base. As I've said, the word of the the Bible is, he that sins in one part is guilty of all. And one can observe the cruelty of this, this teaching of justification being, justification being the infused righteousness. One can see the cruelty of this in classical Roman Catholicism when you talk to the sensitive and conscientious classical Roman Catholic. And here he stands, and as this doctrine developed in its classical direction, men did beat themselves. And I was only to remember the spectacle in Good Friday in uh, in Spain. Men did wear bob wire, and I suppose still in some monasteries around their waist. Classically, the little nun did walk with peas in her shoe. There have been nuns who have burned off their breasts with a hot iron to suffer. It was in our own circle of acquaintance in St. Louis, Missouri, in in the United States, in our own lifetime, that we knew of a nun who died desiring water beyond anything else and deliberately did not accept water, so her suffering would be more acute than is any other way possible. These are not just yesterday, this is classical Rome, but ask, are you sure? Are you sure you've beaten yourself enough? Are you sure you've suffered enough? Are you sure you've done enough? Are you sure? And the cruelty of the whole thing is obvious, because none of these poor people were sure. How could you be sure? How could you be sure that having beaten yourself a thousand and one time, it did not have to be a thousand and two? How could you know? How could you know? Ask the Roman Catholic, the classical Roman Catholic, are you sure you are going to heaven? And the answer will always be no. Ask the classical Roman Catholic, could the Pope be sure he was going to heaven the day he died? And the answer would always be no. It's cruel. It's cruel beyond words. It isn't a loving thing. It is not only a lie of the devil, whereby men are lost, but it is excessively cruel in the present life. Because if it hangs on these things, it is utterly hopeless. How can you know? How can you know? There's no assurance, no assurance, no assurance. And there should be no assurance. Because quite obviously, if it's true that if I sin in one party, I'm part of guilty of all, I never could have assurance. On the other hand, you have a very different picture in the prodigal son in the Bible, where in Luke 15, 11 through 24, Luke 15, 11 through 24, and I think the primary reference here is to the Christian incidentally in the prodigal son but it doesn't matter at this point in this passage when the prodigal came back he still had on the garments and the dirt of the swine keeper you examine the story it's overwhelming the father puts his arms around him and then sends him away to be cleaned up it isn't the other way around it not the other way around the father doesn't say you smell bad go take a bath the father meets him on the road the father puts his arms around it it's after this that he was sent to be cleaned up and even if we do take this as I think is proper properly as the as to applying to the Christian who has wandered away yet nevertheless it certainly is the biblical teaching of justification It is not on being cleaned up even by an infused righteousness. It is that while I am a sinner, Christ Jesus died for me. While I bear the marks of sin still in my own body and the results of it in my life, the love of God is so awesome, so overwhelming, that it has provided a justification while the stench of the world and of the swine still clings to my clothing and my hair. It is like this. And this is exactly the biblical view of justification. Nothing less is great enough. Nothing less really exhibits the awesome love of God. Well, now, if it is not these things, not for any work done by them, and not by infusing righteousness, nor on the basis of any work wrought in them, what is justification? Justification has, we has, uh, can say, two aspects that are related, but I'll give them as two, just to break it up so you can think in two areas for, clar- for your clarity of thought. Now I've said two points, this is my third. One, not for any work done by them, two, not by infusing righteousness or on the basis of any work wrought in them. But three, but by imputing the obedience of Christ to them. Isn't that a breath of fresh air into the other? The imputing. The imputing. The obedience of Christ to them. In Romans four Romans four, one through nine. What shall we then say that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath wear out the glory, but not before God. For what says the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquity are forgiven and whose sins are covered." Cometh this blessedness, then, upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And 22, 22 through 25. Romans 4, through 25. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who delivered, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. It's so total. It's so overwhelming. Put in a parenthesis here. 6.23 of Romans for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gracious gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then Second Corinthians 5. One could, of course, consider so many passages, just a few. Second Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. To wit that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here is the imputation in both directions. The imputing. In Titus, Titus 3, 5, and 7, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here is this sense of imputing in both directions. Now let us notice at this place, however, a very strong negative, and that is that there is no sense of God overlooking my sin. There is no sense of God overlooking my sin. We can say very forcibly, God never forgives a sin. God never forgives a single sin in the sense of just overlooking it. Every sin, because He is completely holy, every sin is punished. Every sin is punished. In Colossians 2:13 through15a. Colossians 2:13 through15a. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Let no man therefore judge you. Oh, I'm sorry. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you. So he doesn't overlook anything. The sins are punished. We live in a moral universe. But for the man who accepts Christ as a Savior, the sin was, a, was punished, all right, but it was punished in Christ's path of obedience as he died upon the cross. There's not a single sin that will ever rise to haunt us through all eternity as an unpunished sin. Every sin that confronts us under the, the jibe of the devil in the present life or could be conceived to ever be remembered in the clarity of our mentality in eternity. Every single sin has been punished. Every sin. No matter how they troop along, like Goya's bad dreams, no matter what awful faces they take, like a medieval imagery or Goya or Freudian, Come from whence they will. Take on the face they will. Be pressed forward by Satan as subtly as he can. To the Christian who has been justified, there is no such thing as an unpunished sin he will ever meet in time or eternity. Every sin of the sin of the Christian has not been just overlooked by God, but punished upon Christ. And the culmination has taken place in the value of the death of Jesus as the infinite, infinite second person of the Trinity. By the moment he says the word, it is accomplished. Now this sense of imputing, what does it mean? What does it mean?
1: <clears throat>
0: and the best illustration that I know, and it's one that some of you have heard me use, I'm sure, but the best illustration I know is the little child. And the little child goes into the store, and we had one of our children do this, actually, when we lived in Champuree. They were buying popularity. And we found out later that the little parade got bigger every every day because there were more and more of the village children following one of our children. I'll not tell you which of the girls. It's one of them. Uh, a little parade. And they were buying popularity left and right. And they go in the store and buy lovely candy and distribute it with largesse and and but of course the trouble came that the village storekeeper thought this was a rather strange situation and phoned and said what about it now here suddenly when the child was confronted with an enormity of this thing and it wasn't a, a very very poor thing thing to do really a naughty thing to do sinful thing to do it pointed point out there was real stealing Now then, when this child is confronted with this and was confronted with a bill, a bill to be paid, a just bill, when this bill was confronted, when the child was confronted with a bill, it was utterly impossible for this child to pay the bill. Now, it's perfectly true that the child could have worked out of it in a certain number of months. And even if it was much greater than it had been, one could consider a child working out of it in a few years by earning money pouring it back in this is perfectly true so therefore the illustration breaks down but nevertheless the general sense of imputing is clear I think here so the child's confronted with it can't meet the bill it became very clear the child didn't really understand was overwhelmed and took a look at it in the proper light so the lesson was learned so what's the solution well Mrs. Schaefer picked up her phone called the storekeeper and said put it on our bill Now that's the biblical concept of imputing. Put it on our bill. Now it's perfectly true. It made our our bill a bit heavier that week than some other times, but it was really not much on our bill. Not much at all. Against the whole week's food bill. The child had run up the bill, but on the the parent says put it on our bill, and the parents could pay. This is exactly what is the case with God It is on our bill and it's hopeless but jesus christ being infinite in his utter love could take it upon himself and say impute it to me and he with infinity could pay the bill that we could never pay and not all creation could pay. now that's what imputing is it is god in his love Providing a way so that that which we cannot pay can be put upon the, the bill of him who can pay, Jesus Christ, and who paid it. But not at an easy cost, not like our paying and adding a little bit to the bill, but the terrible price of Calvary's cross. And the bill was met, and the bill was canceled. And the cancellation was the resurrection of Jesus. The bill is proved to be paid because Jesus rose from the dead. The bill is just, but the bill has been paid, and the cancellation mark is clear for all men to see who will look. It's stamped, paid. Paid. As we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God charges the punishment due to the guilt of our sin. Remember, we're talking about guilt here, legal aspect, judicial guilt. God charges the punishment due to the guilt of our sin, to the account of Christ, and he attributes or imputes to us the obedience of Christ. There's a complete exchange. The active and passive obedience. My sin is imputed to him and he bears it on the cross. And then there is imputed to me His act of obedience, his keeping of the law, so God can say, Francis Schaeffer is a saint. Now then it takes your breath away, because Francis Schaeffer isn't much of a saint. But Francis Schaeffer is a saint, and they're both absolutely true. Because, if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, really, then... My guilt has been put upon Jesus and he carried the build, a guilt and he bore it all there and he paid the price in substitution. But there is clothed upon me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? It makes all these other little things that men have worked out and of trying to put in the place of Christianity, it makes them something first of all Dirty but also nothing. Absolutely nothing. People come to me, they say, what about the lovingness of God? This is the love of God. This is the love of God. It's love, love, beyond any other comprehension. Point number one, not for any work done by them. Point number two, not not by infusing righteousness and not by any work wrought in them. Point number three, but by imputing the obedience of Christ to them. Now then, point number four. What is justification? It's that God Himself, as the judge, declares us to be justified. And get the word, because it'll help you to keep it straight in the years to come when you're buffeted by a thousand false voices. Justification is a declaration by God. It's a declaration by God. He declares something. It's a declarative act of God. It's a forensic act of God. The word forensic is used much anymore in this sense, but it's a good word. It's legal. It's in the area of law. It's the judge sitting upon his seat making a declaration. I declare as a just, just judge that such and such a man is justified. the holy God who will who will not, who cannot overlook sin. Yet nevertheless, upon the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the infinity of it, the value of it, as it was performed not by a continuing suffering Christ, but a once-for-all dying Christ in history, that on that basis, the holy God, the infinitely holy God, can declare that the worst of sinners has been justified. It's the thing that's carried out in every courtroom of the world when the judge sits and he says, you're you're not guilty. Go home. And then all the tears that we see in the photographs of people are declared not guilty. And they weep because they don't have to go to prison. And they weep because at the most extreme thing, they don't have to die. And how awful we are as Christians not to have some not foolish emotion and not not a romantic remote emotion. But how awful not to have a a real emotion when the just de- when the just judge declares not that we just don't have to die but that for eternity all is well all is well so justification here comes here comes men and as they flow along. You see the great stream of man go, mankind going on in its rebellion. But here and there, some come. And in Bunyan's beautiful picture, they pass by the way of the cross. And as they pass by the way of the cross and really believe the instrument of faith, and there is imputed to them, imputed to Christ, their guilt, and he's born it. It's paid for. Every sin is paid for. To the full and stand paid and there is imputed to them his perfect righteousness and as they pass by one by one god declares is judged this man is justified and he passes by and then it's a past act and that's why this is this is the past aspect of salvation to the Christian. If it was only five minutes ago, some of you, it's possible, some of you have accepted Christ as your Savior since we've had this lesson. If it was only five minutes ago, or five seconds ago, five seconds ago, or five years ago, or whatever it was, in that past moment, God declared you to be justified, a forensic act. And for all eternity, no sin can confront you again as far as its guilt aspects of concern. The God who is so holy that Christ had to die upon the cross to meet the sin, if that same judge declares you justified, then, beloved, let the tears flow in thankfulness but dry the tears of fear. There's no fear left. It's the exact opposite of that poor Roman Catholic trying to beat himself once more. Here is God. He is the judge. It is on the basis of law, the law of his own character, the law which is the character, the, the, the chari- his character, which is the law of the universe. It is upon his basis as the as the law as the judge. A mother can say it doesn't matter, dear. But the judge who cannot say this, or he is a bad judge and not a good judge, be it to his own mother standing before the ball, even if it is his own mother standing before the ball, the good judge cannot say anything except guilty if the person is guilty. You have transgressed the law. But on the basis of Christ's finished work and the imputing of this, though we have justly be said to have broken the law of the universe, which is the character of God himself. Yet he remains the just judge because the work is finished. But as the just judge, and not the mother, not overlooking sin, but as the just judge, the infinitely just judge, he can say, I declare you justified. Now this is wonderful, but it's not the end. Because the Bible makes plain it is not merely a pardon. It's not merely a pardon. If it was merely a pardon, we still might have no peace. Again, an illustration out of the long, long background of our, of our own history as a family. One time... Susan, when she was a very, very little girl. Years and years and years ago, I'm sure she won't remember it. But years and years and years ago, she did something, I forget what it was now, to Priscilla. Yes, I do. I remember. There's a little bell ringing in my mind. I think she bit her nose.
1: <laughs>
0: I think that's what she did. I could be wrong, but I think that was it. And then Priscilla dried her tears, so it was pretty good bite. And she said, I forgive you. And Susan just kept right on crying. She had the pardon, but she still wept. She had the pardon, but she still wept. But what God has done for us is not merely a pardon, wherein we still must keep weeping. Justification is more than merely a pardon. It is truly peace. because justification sometimes has been said to mean, and in a way this is, one has to be careful, one can get off the tracks, but it'll do for our present point of lecture. Justification is that once we have been declared justified by God, it's just as though we had never sinned. Justification, just as though we had never sinned in God's sight. I'm not talking about in our effects in history. That's different. We've affected history by our sin. But in God's sight, it's not a bare pardon. But it's forgiveness. Overwhelming. On the basis of the the value of the death of Jesus, the guilt is covered. His Righteousness is as applied to us. And the Holy God declares us just and says, in my sight, because of what Christ has done upon Calvary cross, Calvary's cross and the price that has been paid, it's just as though you've never sinned in my sight. In my sight. Now, that doesn't mean that we should take all these things and forget them, of course. There are things to be made up. There are things, signs in history that we have affected that still show the marks of this, that we sometimes we have responsibility to go back and erase some of these marks from the wall, get some of the dirty words removed from the walls we've written on of history. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that in God's sight, in God's sight, it isn't merely a pardon, it's real forgiveness. It's forgiveness so that in God's sight I can have perfect peace, because I know he's declared... It isn't just a pardon. it be just forgotten. In this sense. I have Isaiah 35, 17, 38, 17 so. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. And then this phrase... For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. When we take Christ as our Savior by the grace of God, on the basis of Christ's finished work and the infinity of it, it isn't just a bare pardon that we keep then and then we keep being reminded, I pardon you, all right, but it isn't this. The Holy God, on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, has cast all my sins behind his back. In Isaiah forty three twenty
1: five
0: I even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. This is a holy God. That doesn't mean the God in his affinity doesn't know it's there, of course he knows all things. But in this sense, I will remember, I won't remember your sins. Isaiah forty three twenty five and then the word in Micah, Micah seven nineteen. Sometimes people may say, "Oh, this is to Israel." All right, but it's nevertheless the same principle. Micah seven nineteen. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And then this word: "And thou hast, ca- thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea." I, behind his back, I will remember them no more. I will cast your sins into the depths of the sea. Those of us who have crossed the Atlantic Ocean on a great steamer, surely you're impressed as you watch the stuff that's thrown out of the back of the boat and just disappears. It's most fantastic. Something about the sea that just takes your breath away, just swallows up the stuff that's thrown in it no matter what the debris is pretty soon the ocean is smooth and clear again and Jesus God says this is exactly my attitude toward this thing that it isn't just a bare pardon but once you've accepted Christ as your savior on the basis of that finished work of Jesus Christ I will remember it no more I won't cast it up into your teeth for time or eternity it's like the debris of mankind thrown into the sea disappears and it's gone God isn't going to cast it up to you when you stand before him in judgment now, there's a believer's judgment I'm not talking about this but there's no guilt. the guilt is gone. you'll never 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 cast your guilt in your teeth again and anytime after you become a true born-again Christian that guilt is dragged up to you now if you there is a reality as we'll see in the true spirituality when you get there uh, of, Having to bring the individual sins as God brings them to your mind and confess them. I'm not talking about that. But in true Christianity, when you are when you have brought your life under the blood of Christ, and then you bring your specific sin under the blood of Christ, when guilt is dragged into your teeth again, it's never God, it's always Satan. conscience can be good up to the moment the thing is brought under the blood of Christ but when it's brought under the blood of Christ after that conscience is wrong it's it's an instrument of the devil. Martin Luther understood this in his sensitivity when he wrote his great commentary on the book of Galatians and he spoke of salvation from our conscience. There's a psychology beyond anything that any old materialistic psychologist is ever going to arrive at out freedom. You can still have guilt complexes, but you know there's no guilt left in it. No <coughs> real guilt. And therefore, they can be denied. This is all justification. As wonderful as the declarative act is in the pure judicial sense, it's more. It's not merely a pardon. There is the ground for true peace because God is at peace with me. God is at peace with me. I look down, my hands are soiled. And I bring it under the blood of Christ. And I look back to the day when I took Christ as my Savior. And I can say, this I know. God is at peace with me. God is at peace with me. When does man's true peace come? Man's true peace comes when he realizes that his sins have been punished. And therefore the thing is really concluded. I can, It can bring me tears to think that my Lord had to bear this sin. But I can be at peace in knowing that God is at peace with me because I know they have been punished. And So we come to justification. Here the guilt of sin is declared by God removed and all this flows from it. True peace. Not just bear pardon. True peace. Another factor here is the wonder, and we have to discuss this surely in the twentieth century, though we'll go on and discuss it more in, in True Spirituality, section on True Spirituality. The wonderful thing is that it is all outside of the sinner. It is all outside of the sinner. You never have to look inside of yourself for the peace. You never have to look inside of yourself for the assurance. Because it isn't inside of yourself, it's outside of yourself. It's really objective. It's really objective. Really so. Objective in Christ's death upon the cross. Objective in the promises of God in a written book that you can read with a rational comprehension and not just a mystical meaning. I can look away from myself. I can look back there to death. The death of Christ in history upon the cross. And again you can feel the unscrupulousness of what the devil has done in the new theology concerning Christ and his work when this is destroyed or minimized. I can stand here and it is outside of myself. I look back to the death of Christ upon the cross. And then I look back to that moment of history when I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I look to the promises of the Word of God And I am not caught up in this awful thing that's true to every one of us since man has fallen, and that is just chasing my tail like a dog. Round Round and round and round and round and round and round and round. Trying to escape. And a false psychology tries to find ways to get you out of this subjectivity by saying, oh, act as if this is so, and act as if that is so. But that we don't have to. There is a reality. There is an objectivity. Christ did die upon the cross, and I have the objectivity of his promise. And not just to merely act as if, but in reality, in tremendous reality. i It's all outside of myself. There is a total objectivity. The windows are open. The sun comes in. The old musty room is aired out. The tail-chasing act can be broken. In the midst of the darkness of the night, I don't have to look in myself regardless of what those sins are, no matter what these guilt complexes are, they can be they can be all considered in the light of an objective glance, the objective glance to Jesus dying there upon the cross and explained by God himself in an objectively inspired word which can be understood in the simple historical grammatical exegesis of the common use of the words in the common book of grammar. Such are the riches that God has given us in justification. We must always must also point out here that this act of God, this declarative, forensic act of God as judge, is all at once and once for all. It is not. It is not a continuing thing. It doesn't have to be a continuing thing. The judge declares it, and it's finished. It's all at once. It's once for all, just as Jesus' death in history was once for all. So when I accepted Christ as my Savior, the forensic, declarative act of God is once for all. So justification is an act. Please put that down. Justification is an act. This is in contrast to sanctification, which is a process. There are common factors between justification and sanctification, but there are some things that are overwhelmingly different, and this is the first one to notice that is different. Justification is an act, an act of God, a declarative act of God. Sanctification is a process. Justification deals with guilt. Sanctification deals with the power of sin in my life. This is another difference. Now that we'll see in the true spirituality that there are overwhelming similarities. But these differences are also important. Justification deals with a problem of guilt. Sanctification deals with the power of sin in my life. Justification is an act, a declarative act of God, whereby He declared my guilt cared for, covered, finished. Sanctification is an unending process in this present life. It's an act of God. It's not a process and so it is absolutely passed to the man who is a true Christian. I can say I am being sanctified, but I cannot say I am being justified if I am a Christian. If I am a Christian, I am back in Romans 5.1, having been justified in the past. Only to the Christian, but if I am a Christian, having been justified in the past, And it's an absolute past, an absolute act. So I must think of justification as past. I I need never I must not ask for this again. It is a once for all thing. It is quite finished. As I say in the Greek, it must be heirist. It's all at once, once for all, it's an act of God, an absolutely past to the Christian. Also for justification, there is no, there are no degrees in justification. There are no degrees in justification. Are you taking notes? Don't miss this. There are no degrees in justification. Just as there are no degrees in either birth or marriage. You can't be a little bit born and you can't be a little bit married. And the intriguing thing is these are the two illustrations out of life that God uses for the picture of, of this reality. There are no degrees. Now there are overwhelming degrees of sanctification, both from Christian to Christian and at different points in my own life. It isn't always in a straight line. There are degrees in sanctification, but there's no degree in justification. When God says your guilt is gone, God the Holy God means your guilt is gone. It's just absolute. It's absolute. It can't be added to. When God the Holy God says your guilt is gone, declares your guilt is gone, it is impossible then to have it and I'm not trying to say this to be funny, I don't know any other way to say it. It's not possible to have it gone. It's gone. It's absolute. So there are absolutely no degrees in justification. Now when we come to true spirituality, there are true there are degrees in sanctification, or also in justification, is irrevocable because it's on the basis of Christ's finished work. It's not on the basis of your faith. It's not on the basis of, of anything, as we have seen, except the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because it is upon the base of the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is irrevocable. It is irrevocable. Justification is a declarative act of God. It is in the area of law, the legal legal relationship to God, which, as I've said, is not to be primary, but nevertheless is not to be despised or minimized. It is outside of the sinner. It is all at once. To the Christian, it is a past act. It has no degrees. It is complete. It is finished if one has truly accepted Christ as Savior. And it's irrevocable because it rests on that which is sufficient. The infinite work of the eternal Son of God on Calvary's cross. We will stop here as our two hours are up, and in our next lecture, finish justification and go on to the present aspect of salvation. This concludes now our 21st study of the doctrinal structure of the Bible.